0: Hello and welcome to the Bedrosian Center's book club podcast, an audiobook club where we read and discuss a book every month, sometimes two. We read new and classic works, fiction and non, through lens of governance to really get at what it means to participate in our communities today. I am Aubrey Hicks, the Executive Director of the Bedrosian Center, and I think we're in for a really good conversation today. I think an important conversation. Uh, We've got great guests today, and we're covering a fascinating book about how people in power tend to essentialize anyone they deem as other, getting at the idea of what is normal and what is abnormal. We're discussing Alice Domerant dregers 2004 book, One of Us, Conjoined Twins and the Future of Normal. With me to talk about the book are Liz Folletta. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Hi, I'm Liz. Uh, I am faculty at the Price School. Uh, I teach design across disciplines to urban planning and uh, real estate development students.
0: Thank you for joining us, and a new friend to the podcast, uh, Christine Beckman. Welcome! I'm so glad that you're here. Can you
2: tell our listeners a little bit about what you do? Yeah, I'm excited excited to get to join this conversation. Um, I'm also a faculty member in the Price School. I uh, study and teach. Social innovation, sort of new solutions to, to old and complicated problems. Um, and have done some work on, on gender and body. And so I, I sort of really resonated with this book coming from that, that perspective. Good. I'm so glad
0: we're going to talk about this. And last, but definitely not least, is Lisa.
3: (laughs) Thanks for making this book. Can you remind our listeners who you are, please? Yes, I am Lisa Schweitzer. I'm a professor in the Saul Price School of Public Policy in the Department of Urban Planning and Spatial Analysis. And I also teach in gender and sexuality studies here at USC. And you want to know why I suggested this book?
0: Yes, I was going to say, can you give us a little summary and why you suggested this book? I'm
3: Yes, certainly. I had read this many years ago um, when it first came out and it has subsequently really become a classic in disability studies. Um, I remember back then being impressed with it and I wanted to revisit it 20 years later um, to sort of ask some questions about how Uh, trans rights and the internet and new technologies and new discussions about gender and sexuality in particular uh, might have changed my reactions to the book. Um, And so uh, just to dive into a summary, uh, Drager is a historian of medicine, um, and her dissertation uh, resulted in two very fine books, which are also considered to be pretty important books, uh, problematizing early on the um, medical establishment's uh, stigmatization of intersex uh, children uh, by defaulting to the notion that these children necessarily needed surgical interventions in order to become normal um, and boosted the evidence base that many of the children who go through these surgeries sort of come out on the other side not dreadfully happy with how they've been treated and what the results are. and and, and and having that be very interesting. Uh, from there, she moves into this work using a sort of a history and a discussion of the medical establishment's treatment of conjoined twins, wherein the same kind of assumptions going in um, tended to rule um, medical science and, and sort of culturally um, people's notion that uh, the children are born aberrant and need to be fixed in some way even though these surgeries are very dangerous. There are some chapters in here that I really do think stand up very well. I think that's a probably pretty much what we need to know. We can get into some of the particular cases, if you like.
0: I think we can do that as we go along, um, unless anybody disagrees with that. I sort of think as we um, start this conversation, and I think this conversation is about this very question, but um When we say normal or abnormal, what is the assumption of what is a normal
2: body? Yeah, I mean, she does a great job of posing, right? Posing that. And what's the difference between a, you know a good life and a normal life? What's the difference between a normal versus common? And like, so I mean, I just said that, that, that she she did that. One of the things I really liked about the book was that it really forces you to sort of tackle like what what is yeah what do we mean by normal and just because it's common uh, doesn't mean it's actually the right way or the good way to be. And I thought that was a really, prof- she makes a point in various ways over and over. And I thought it was a pretty powerful one.
3: I mean, I think one of the most important things to take away from the book is just how much of our understanding of what is normal is aesthetic, right? It's a visual and aesthetic question um, determined by the gaze of other people, way more so than um the actual lived experiences of people who have physical difference.
2: And it's also uh, from our own perspectives, like the inability to see other, other perspectives, right? And I think the importance of perspective taking too. So it's definitely an aesthetic. And it's also, it's, that's because it's, it's what I know and everyone else around me knows I I don't see a lot of conjoined twins. I don't know what that experience is like. And you can't get into that perspective. So I think that, that also to me was, was pretty fundamental of, of the, and she does, a, you know, she does a lot of stories and makes a lot of analogies. And I think it's all with the intent of trying to really encourage us to take the perspective that is unfamiliar.
1: Yeah, and I, I really liked that she, uh, you know, she was like, we all do this in various ways, um, you know, with our clothing and with how we um, project ourselves. And um, and it's a, it's a continuum of normality as opposed to. Um, this either or difference. So I think um, all of those are really important, and I I,
0: um, I think they get into one of this um, the really central ideas. And um, behind all of the stories that she's sharing is this um, relationship between what we call disability, what we call normalcy, and power. Um, and who holds the power, you know, in a lot of the stories about the particular conjoined twins, you know, the power was either in the parents or in doctors. The power was always, except for, I think, one case, really, in the hands of people who were not in, who couldn't actually be in that situation, where had never been in that situation, who were not ever conjoined twins. And it just struck me that this idea, too, of normalcy is... So new when she was talking about the conjoined twins who would go on, you know, the quote unquote freak shows had the agency to make money off of their difference in ways that, you know, say a seven foot two person who's really good at basketball can now make money off of their difference. I don't know. What do you think about that idea of power and normalcy?
2: Just to the point, Aubrey, of the you know, that how his house changed over time in a way that is, you know, more disempowered the people uh, that, that, that are, that are different rather than empowered them. I thought that was a really important point. And I think, you know, and it's to this example of, you know, the freak shows and the, the ways of making money as a result of that abnormality. And really she she makes the point that that, that attention to it is not bad What's bad is you know, when we put shame and, and sort of a negative connotation to it. And she really, she talks about the curiosity that people had and, you know, wanting to go into these salons or parlors and sort of, you know, talk to the, to the eight foot, eight foot, um, giant. Um, and that was, I thought was really important to, to that, that, um, you know, a, that we, we disempowered people over time in the metal, you know, by, by the right, by medicalizing it and, Making it something more that we have to fix. We are, you know, a, taking away choice, right? That is your point. Like people making those choices, they're usually not the people with the conditions, especially when they're children. But, but also they're, they, 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 it's no longer a source of livelihood. It's not, it's not seen as, um, okay to, to, you know, other than playing basketball, right? Um, but, but the conjoined twins are not able, to, you know, to, to make money off that in a way that they would, that's seen as sort of, Negative and instead the ma- medical establishment in some senses is is, is t- making choices for them and um depriving them the opportunity of of actually using that in any way that would um be useful to them. I thought that was interesting, right you're now in a textbook, you don't get paid for being in a textbook. you used to get paid for 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 being in the freak shows,
0: yeah, the textbook that part about the textbook and and how um, older images used to have the gaze of the individual. And now we take the individual out by putting bars over, over the bits
3: that would make perhaps a doctor uncomfortable. Well, that help of us reestablish their humanity, right? Like the eyes are covered, right? And they're naked. Whereas in the older images and the lithographs, they're dressed, right? And I mean, I think in some respects, those can be interpreted as, whoa, there's a person in full, victorian dress or edwardian dress i should probably be accurate who has two heads oh my god there's two what 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 but i mean at least with with having people put themselves on display to talk about their decisions they were talking and it was interactive right whereas now so many of these experiences are mediated right and they are you know the objects of scrutiny and the objects of journalism and the objects of science right in such a way that you know the discussion of sort of contemporary talk shows and how people who were on them, you know, generally found those to be much more positive experiences where, you know, even if somebody does have a question that's kind of none of their business or that's puerile or, or even obnoxious, they can at least speak to that.
0: Yeah. That section where she's talking about um, the talk shows, today's talk shows being like freak shows, that was really striking to me because you know there's always this sort of like oh those are lowbrow and trashy even and yet when you think about what she's really saying is is you know these the medical establishment in which we have put a lot of respect and power into objectifies people i mean it objectifies everyone it objectifies you know women you know men black people conjoined twins and yet the respect for the people who are actually speaking and trying to tell stories about people are, you know, not respected. I found that a really um, interesting
3: dichotomy and made me question a lot of things. I mean, I I sort of pushed back a little bit when I was reading the material on talk shows and thinking about reality TV shows based on people who have difference. Um, is that these are still very much mediated experiences for the vast majority of the people who are consuming them, right? They're edited, they're produced in a very specific way, right? They're marketed in a very specific way. So, there's not still necessarily the notion um, that there's a fully realized human being, you know, capable of telling their own story in that way. And yet, again, for people who have participated in in these kinds of um, productions, you know, come out with varying levels of, Feelings, right? Different feelings about that, about those those activities, right? Some very much saying that it was a validating thing for to do, very much being able to connect with other people who have similar conditions, and then other people leaving, going yeah, that wasn't so good, right?
2: Yeah, I think I think you're right, Lisa, about the mediation. I think I like Aubrey. I, I found that that section really challenged me a bit to think to think differently about those those talk shows, and and, and I think, you know, to the extent that they're crafted to a shock value and people don't have control of that narrative, it's problematic. But can I I read one? There's one quote in that section that I really liked. Um, And she's talking about, you know, the museums that we go to where you can see these anomalies and the casts of the conjoined twins or the giants. Um, And she says, you know, for me the problem lies not in the attraction, but in the shame ascribed to the attraction a shame that is nowhere evident when someone is drawn to a person with a conventionally gorgeous anatomy. And I thought that was really, um, really striking, right? It's not that we aren't attracted to, 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 to bodies, uh, right? Um, uh, but, but it's that, 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 that attraction, that curiosity is turned into a feeling of shame. That's the problem. It's not the attraction itself. Um, I, I thought that was, I liked that juxtaposition
0: a lot. Yes. And I think it also, putting it in those words, she helped me think about why I've always been uncomfortable, um, with things about, uh, documentaries or books about conjoined twins. I think part of it is that I've never actually spoken to anyone who is a conjoined twin. So there is that, that distance and also that feeling of, they've been put on on a pedestal like a spectacle and that feeling like they are, they shouldn't be a spectacle. They should be a person. I thought the most sort of famous conjoined twins, Chang and Ang. I, I really liked that she included them. Did anyone ever, did either of you, uh, all of you read Chang and Eng, the fictional novel that came out a few years ago? No. Was it good? I, um again, you know, I think, because I really like to be alone, the thought of being with someone all the time <laughs> really um, is disturbing, not because you know I think it's it's actually disturbing, but because I like to be alone and I can't imagine, you know there are times when I you know, I don't even want the cats in the room, you know, I don't want the dogs in the room, I just want to be by myself and that thought of never being able to but, I grew up not, you know, as a singleton, not as a, a conjoined twin. So um, my experience would be totally different if I had been born a different way. And and I think thinking in those terms really made me think
1: about what was it that made me uncomfortable. I really love the Chang and Ng parts, just partially because I had not realized that they settled in North Carolina, which is where I'm from. So I've experienced that society. And it's amazing to me that that they were embraced um, by, you know, the town where they lived, Mount Airy, which is close to where I grew up. And so interesting that, that, you know, they married and had two families and that, you know, people were big families and people were more concerned about their race than their conjoinment, which I think tells us a lot. At, that just tells us a lot about that society. And how that might have evolved into to how we think about this now,
0: and how ideas of normalcy have changed too. That you know they were more concerned about race, and even you know as the you know the story when the great grandchildren get involved, that they didn't know because it was the the Chinese
1: lineage that the family was sort of yeah, that they about. were so worried about. And I, I think too, just going back to to agency and and power you know, they couldn't be separated. They didn't have that ability. And and so, so the, weirdly, the lack of that choice meant that they had to, they had to go with this in a way that that made sense for them, because that was the only option. So, you know, in many ways, I think we have too many options today.
0: So is agency part of what is being normal? Is being normal having agency?
1: I think having agency makes a wider range of things seem normal, for sure. Mm -hmm. Somebody with agency is not going to be self-conscious or as self-conscious.
2: Well, that certainly goes to, to the question of, of choice. And do you, you know, that, I mean, I thought it was fascinating that there was only one conjoined twin that had actually made a deliberate decision to try and become unjoined that most conjoined twins that had the choice continued to be together Speaks both to the fact that it's not so, you know, for in their experience, it it wasn't, it wasn't something they were chafing against and they were upset about, but also to how rarely they're given the choice. Um, uh, right? that, that someone else, the medical establishment, their parents, um, especially, I guess, because the operations are op- often happening very young. But at what age should you be given agency for, a, for a decision that that, that is that monumental, right? And especially given, I was fascinated that the, the measure of success is whether you live, right? Not the quality of the life that you have or what kind of ailments you have, right? but that just that you lived. That's, that's enough to be called worthwhile and a success.
1: Well, and that that often after separation, twins seemed more disabled than less, um, like that things were missing.
2: Yeah. And that sort of speaks, Lisa, to your earlier point about the intersex too, like that, 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 that the, these surgeries are not, are not easy and they, they, and they create, uh, yeah, all sorts of, um, these more, more, more disabilities, and, and, you know, which makes sense if you're sharing organs and all of a sudden you're having to try and live with one of those organs, those organs aren't as strong. So they, you know, respiratory problems, heart problems, you know, it just, uh, it was, uh, also, yeah, striking, you
0: yeah, striking. Yeah. I think earlier before we started recording, um, you were talking Lisa about how much has changed in the you know almost twenty years since so this book was up in two thousand four? I also think you know what I noticed was the the lack of the word ableism in the book and how much our um, our conversations about these ideas have a new and perhaps better language. But I think you were also talking about you know the the current discourse on trans and and when when children. Should be able to make that decision.
3: One of the reasons why I wanted to revisit this is that this author has, at various points, um, butted heads with trans advocates over, um, you know, like one is a, and I mean, I think in some respects, there's a lot of misunderstanding that can happen around somebody when they're in online discussions in particular. And uh, not being um, trans myself, I I only have a limited ability to really speak for um, the concerns here. or, you know, I'm not able to really adjudicate what's really transphobic and what isn't, but that the point of conflict really has to do with her um, assessment of, like, when surgeries are appropriate, right? And that she, you know, many, 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 many times has affirmed um, gender reassignment and the decision to choose to do it, but just running into sort of those difficulties about, you know, how do you, do you try to create a hard and fast rule about, what a proper age for consent is, again, running up against a similar problem, which is the sooner a person decides to reassign, the easier it is, right? The younger a person decides to take this on like before puberty, right? Um, These kinds of surgical interventions can be a lot easier on the individual who undertakes them. With, uh, you know, the blowback of of, with people going, no, they're too young to make these decisions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And with trans people legitimately saying, look, you know, these are children who are electing into, um, which is very different from outside people who are not you deciding that you are a problem that needs to be solved. Right. Um, Children readily readily identify their gender dysmorphia. Right. And their body dysmorphia and their, you know, um, desire to take on um, different surgeries and modifications for their body. But also, right, the real difficulty of really wanting to affirm people who really fall at all places on the the reassignment spectrum, right? Because many people will opt for partial right reassignment. Some people will just not conform and not underca- not undertake um, any surgery at all. And that again, the sort of key difference here is that in her early career, she's really in this mode of problematizing. Um, intersex surgery, which is very different, right, than reassignment. So then that gets us into questions about what does it really mean to consent, right? Can a person really consent in a society where there are 5 million billboards in advertising a weight reduction surgery? And every single message you get from your family and microaggressions at work are telling you that your larger body is just unacceptable, right? Is that a person undertaking a dangerous surgery in in that context is that really consent? right? And at what age can we really say that a child consents?
1: I think this comes down to agency again. um like Lisa, your point with with uh, transgender children, it's often the children who are who are um, advocating for themselves in this way and insisting and 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 really, most of them remember it being this way from the beginning, um, you know, that they were uh, the wrong gender or, or it, you know, certain things felt wrong. And I think society and families, uh, you know, put these um, attitudes about normalcy on, you know, when that's put upon someone as opposed to coming from them. You know, I had surgery at 18 that I shouldn't have had. And I consented to it, but it wasn't what I wanted. It was what my mother wanted. So,
0: yeah, I think one of my, one of the questions that I wrote down was how do those in familiar or cultural power positions take away agency from those deemed abnormal? And in many ways, that can be, we can use the word abnormal pretty broadly. I mean, here she's, she's really talking about conjoined twins, but, you know, how do, how do we take away agency from little girls? How do we take away agency from anyone that is not white male in, in America and society particularly?
2: Yeah. And she talked about the, I thought she, she handled it pretty well. It was pretty, um, sort of a little touchy, like, so that this idea that we we really do want to value variation, and we want to appreciate differences. And, and, and I think she sort of sort of says that that's a good value. I, I, at the abstract level, I'm all in favor. But the reality is, we live in a world where there is a hierarchy of what is seen as better or are less good and and for your child. Right in the talking about conjoined twins, you know, if you're going to make the decision of, of saying yes, it's great that you're different and and I applaud that. You can't really ignore the context uh, in which in which that decision is being made, where there are where there is hierarchy of, of what is seen as as normal and good. And I I thought that was you know a, worth pointing out that in the abstract. Yes, we, should, we, we embrace the, the variety of people out there. And in the reality, we how do you get beyond this sort of hierarchy and the fact that we are getting messages all the time about what is normal and what is good, whether that's about girls or conjoined twins or whatever? I think that, that it brought the point home, like what, what it was like for people in these individual moments, um, right? When you're making decisions and how your values intersect with the reality of the world that we're living in.
0: Yeah, I think uh, her her little four-way into, um, um, there was a, a a short section on, now I'm forgetting what I was going to say. I forgot what I was going to say. Lisa, you were going to say something.
3: <laughs> you know, I don't think I was. I think I might have had maybe a fleeting look of relative intellect firing. Uh, but I, I, I've got something, you know, I was thinking uh, when Christine was talking about a moment in one of my classes many years ago, many years ago, actually, I think maybe the first or second time, I taught uh, my very first justice class. Um, There was an older woman in my class who um, was Sri Lankan, and she um, sort of talked about how she, when she was very young, uh, she was a young widow. And and again, she, again, being sort of other in this class, being much older than many of the other people in class, and she admitted that when she went on a job interview, she used a skin lightening product. Mm. Right. And um, I had a student confront me afterwards because I had intervened in the class discussion because I very much felt like her peers were um, I felt like the discussion was getting out of hand and that people were unfairly uh, getting on her, not because, you know, they aren't right. And that the more people who accede to using skin lightening, it means as, as Streger points out, right. When we sort of normalize the things that we can kind of sneak in under the radar Um, It means that there is less variety in the world so that variety is never normalized. Right. At the same time, this was a woman who was a young widow with two kids trying to get a gosh darn job. Right. (laughs) Like what, what are, you know, in that instance, right, we've got the full pressure as Christine points out of abstract notions about equality versus the hard brick wall of people needing to eat and provide for their kids. And, um, Like I said, uh, and a student who kind of said, no, that wasn't cool. You shouldn't have intervened. And to this day, I still maintain that, you know, you don't, one, there's not much she can do about it after the fact. Two, she trusted us with information that, you know, clearly still bothered her. And we had established the point that, um, you know, she didn't make the world that she was trying to survive in. Just like these parents didn't make the world that they want their children to try to flourish in. Um, And while it's a very good thing for us to sort of reflect and try to self-examine and to challenge these appearance hierarchies whenever we can, um, the world is still the world, right? Um, It's one of the cool things about the internet, and I think I'll try, if it's okay with you, Aubrey, I'll introduce a new topic. One of the things that's really been wonderful about the advent of the internet is the ability for people to speak for themselves, Right Much less mediated, much you know none of this reporting or little hero's journey stories about you know an, an autistic person who does this and this. autistic people have YouTube channels with hundreds of thousands of followers speaking directly about their experiences for themselves um and and on the one hand that's that is one of those moments of where a person is using agency to educate and to help bring people into their world and really putting difference out there in a way that helps us understand that, you know, people come in many forms and, you know, many different kinds of of, of ways of being that exist out there. On the other, the internet's also a place where people are really pretty mean about that stuff. And it's also a place where disinformation thrives. And it's a place where, um, you know, uh, support groups for parents of autistic children can turn into discussions about what a terrible burden those kids are. Right. Um, so the, the, you know, obviously there are trade-offs in the world is that the world that we're living in, in 2021 is really quite significantly different than the one that Drager's talking about. While yet those themes are still pretty important, right. They're just mediated in different ways. Don't know if that was helpful or not, but
0: it is, you know, um, I think one of the things I'm thinking about when you were talking and it's more of a tangent as well. Um, Is this idea of certainty and uncertainty that I feel like is underlying a lot of this? I actually think it was underlying in the book that we talked about yesterday was solutions and other problems. This idea that in American culture, we want things to be black and white. We want things to be certain or or, we want things to be certain. We don't want things to be uncertain. Um, we want things to be right or wrong. We want there to be a right answer. And so much of this and so much about the idea of normalcy is that everyone is different. (laughs) You know, so we can say we have this, this sort of median idea of what is normal as defined by culture. And yet there is no one who is that ideal. Um, we are all weird in our own ways.
1: Yeah. We're all weirdos. Now, I, I keep thinking of um, that Andrew Solomon book, uh, Far From the Tree, uh, you know, that that looks at, you know, hearing children of deaf parents or, you, you know, uh, children children who are more or less different from their parents, and there's a degree of, you know, separation in the sense, you know, I'm of you, but not really of you, and, and I belong to this different group. And, and I think everybody... Everybody can relate to that. Uh, You know, I was so, yeah, I mean, I, I relate to it through adoption in some way, because like, I don't know anyone who I'm physically related to, not a soul. And my parents are totally related to all these people who I call cousins and, you know, all of this. And, and it's so everybody has experienced their own difference. And, and I think you're right, Aubrey. We have this society that, that tells us in a hundred different ways, you know, you need to be this or be that, but you can't be this other thing over here. And it's, it is strange because all of us have experience with difference, with difference and with sameness. So,
0: I mean, I just think of, um, you know, the story of Chang and Eng again, going back to that, that, you know, I know it through fiction. I know it through these historical documents, but so much of it is because they spoke out so much about what it was like to be them. And, you
1: know, it is just, it's a fascinating story. And the other, like they were also slaveholders. Yeah. Like fascinating that we get one thing and we don't get the other. Right. Yeah. It's it's yeah. Yeah. This,
0: this idea that there isn't, um, you know, that, that those lines between things are more porous than we expect. Yeah. And, you know, in, in terms of this book, you know, I think it comes with, you know, what is the medical establishment trying to do? It's trying to sort of impose this certainty on everything that doesn't really exist. Am I? Yeah, I don't know. So,
2: And it doesn't even exist in the medical establishment. I mean, I feel like that's the other part too, right? I mean, so anyone that's had any medical ailment knows that, you know, medicine is is part art and part science I and mean, then you never really there's there's never complete certainty there you're trying stuff out uh, and and I think that it's a it's a convenient cloaking and, and trying to ignore that fundamental uncertainty. Maybe um, you can see that in the you know when they talk about the operations and not you know not collecting the evidence on 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 what actually really happened since we're gonna only success is just living, right? So we don't really need to think about the complications. Um, and it just yeah, they, 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 they just, there's a, it's, it, of course, it's all uncertain, right? Life is uncertain, but medicine is uncertain too. And, and, they, and they, but, but they, they need to um, pretend that's not the case, which sort of goes back to that power dynamic that you talked about earlier and really disempowering people to actually have information to actually make real choices about really complex things.
3: I mean, that's the point of expertise, though, right? The, the expert, expert professions exist because there is a market to try to lower risk, right? And the future is a risky place, right? So the experts are supposed to be there in order to try to help people make decisions for better future states. Um, and admitting that, you know, we're always looking at the future through a glass darkly is a diminishment of the power of the professional, right? That's hard for people to accept, right? So I exist in a profession that goes sort of routinely gets uh, bludgeoned about because we haven't solved poverty. We haven't solved the city. Do you know how many times I have seen the headline, will this solve the city? Will this solve the city? Like what the heck would you solve about a city? It is, right? And there are all sorts of urban problems and this and that and the other, but Um, This whole notion that things are problems that need to be solved or future states that need to be managed is very important to the whole universe of the enlightenment professions of which medicine is one. Um, And, you know, being in a policy school, all of us, right, are in that tradition of this whole notion that future decisions about what to do in the present influencing the future are better done when informed by expertise.
2: Absolutely. I and mean, then I think, and Giddens talks about, um, right, modernity and science and the challenge that, that I don't know how am I, I'm not, how I, am not going to say, I'm not going to say this right, but, you know, th- th- because it's always evolving, right? And of course we don't solve poverty because, but, you know, you, you, you iterate and you evolve evidence changes, we learn, right? And that that can then be a critique. For some, of science itself, because there is no answer, and so you know, how can we trust you because you don't have the answer? But the whole point of science is that it's evolving, um, and and so so that is, I think I think you're you're certainly right to the expert point. Although in this context, I think I'm struck by the difference between an expert saying, oh, um, you know, what's a good life and what's a normal life, right? And 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 what the medical establishment is focused on, which is normalcy, not 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 a good life. And I think the the stories she, she tells you know, about, about the ang and the, that, that those are stories about there are good lives here um, that, that just don't look normal according to the expert. So I think that, I just think that's an important distinction.
3: Well, I mean, I think one of the, her points, right. Is the, um, the lack of willingness, like the desire to medicalize and scientize. I I don't know if I made up that word or not, but I'm going with it. Um, to take out the normative, judgment is actually a real problem here. Because you can't answer the question, what is good with a a microscope. Um, And there are all sorts of things you can use with a microscope. But that question about what is good, and what is right, those are not easily solved questions, their answers are contingent and context dependent, and they evolve over time and all of those things. So in the same way that we can say things like, you know, in general, vaccines are good. (laughs) <laughs> right, the whole idea of you know, it, you know, you could contrast Chang and Eng with Gracie Atard, right? Who appears later in the book, who is now twenty years old and doing pretty damn well, if the if the if the reports that I read last night are any indicator. So to so give listeners a little bit of background, um, the chapter in here that's hardest for me is the one on sacrifice surgeries. It's a really hard chapter to read. I think it really confronts us with some really difficult questions just by way of offering a trigger warning. This is a discussion about euthanasia and the whole notion of uh, a surgery that is undertaken to save one twin when the other twin, uh, their body is, is not viable on their own, but they are still a conscious entity. Um, this And I hate this term. It's not a quote unquote parasitic twin that has, has it largely vanished by the time uh, a baby is born. Um, I have a friend, for example, who's got a little twin on his ear. Um, and it's just, you know, some, a little extra flesh that's hanging onto the body. Sacrifice surgeries are are really about when you have two babies that really are babies and only one of them can live, right? If you undertake a surgery. And Gracie, at, Gracie and her sister, was it Rosie? Is that her name? Yeah, Rosie. I think it's Rosie. Katie. I think it was Katie. Katie. Yeah, Katie. I'm so sorry. She didn't heard her name deserves to be there and I, I went and revived rev-
0: it was Rosie. Rosie and Gracie and, and it's one of the other twins that is a Katie. <laughs>
3: okay. Yeah, well my apologies. there's um, lots of IEs. But you know, you know, she Gracie, you know, ended up being the beneficiary of a surgery. Um, it's not clear that they would have been able to survive together. And there's a lot of paternalism in this story, right? A lot of things that, you know, people like me who usually want those decisions to rest with the patients and the families, there's a lot of moments where, you know, it's kind of a white knuckle discussion because ultimately we know the outcome's pretty pretty damn good, right? I think that
0: that story is so well told. I mean, so concisely, but all of the different, I mean, probably not all of, but so many different um, nuances that she she gives you the the parents not wanting to have the surgery, partially because of fear that that neither twin would survive, partially out of fear that they would that one would survive and they would have a, a severely disabled child that they weren't sure that they could take care of well enough, the medical establishment that wanted to make the decision for the family, all of the lawyers and everyone who was involved all the ethicists at the hospital and um, just all of the people involved in that decision, none of them have ever been in that experience.
3: Just as a note, I was right. It was Rosie. Good job, Lisa. But, you know, this is the thing, right, is that, you know, what do you do in an ethical discussion in that moment when you just don't know that Gracie's is going to survive, Right. Um, and you have in fact killed one twin for the sake of for for the sake of giving another a shot that doesn't work out versus the sort of hindsight that we four have in reading this book all these years later yeah she's still she's doing okay, you know, and that's the thing that that expertise is really supposed to do for us right like it's so frustrating right because it's a it's a legitimate question is that these doctors really did have a lot of confidence that Gracie, that this was going to be how things went for Gracie. And it wasn't 100% certainly, but they had a lot of confidence and they had a lot of knowledge that would lead them to that. And, you know, in terms, in fairness to um, Ms. Edhard's parents, you know, they are in a context on Malta where there's not a lot of infrastructure for for people with disabilities. And they were also first-time parents, mm-hmm. right? All first-time parents are a little bit like, I don't know if I can do this, Right. Especially when vis-a-vis an entire world going, oh, my God, these kids aren't going to be normal. Oh, my God, they're going to be so different. Oh, my God, how will they live? (laughs) Right? All the noise that surrounded these two new parents. Um, It it really does get us into this whole idea of, well, you know, this was an instance where, you know, technical expertise was important and turned out to be right. And, you know, the author, um, Dreger, very much at the end is still kind of going, (laughs) ah, but i think
0: you know that gets to i think a couple things i think expertise is important but i i i wonder if we've gotten so segregated you know that maybe doctors alone a surgeon alone shouldn't be making that decision you know maybe it is philosophers and ethicists and and i think that's the the strength of your department Um, And sort of the Price School is this interdisciplinary work that you've got experts from different fields who can take their historical knowledge and sort of try to put it together
3: and make the best guesses. So the thing about the surgeries, though, is at some point they're a yes or a no.
2: Yes. And there's the uncertainty you don't know what's going to happen. You just that's right. don't but know what's going to happen. That's with surgeries, from you know, it's with all
0: surgeries. I mean, they make you, when you get your wisdom teeth, they, they say, hey, you might not be able to feel your jaw after this. So, yeah, I mean, and, and that is the uncertainty um, that we keep railing against.
1: Well, but I also feel like it depends on how that expertise is deployed mm-hmm. and what that context is, because all of us for sure want you know, to take in as much information as we can, you know, make our decision and then live, live with the results of that decision, you know, but we, we also want to feel that the expertise that we consumed, you know, was unbiased and was, you know, fully fledged in terms of understanding risks and consequences. And, um, you know, and then often we're, we're trying to make those decisions in a state of duress, right? Like Lisa gave a great visual for that was awesome. (laughs) You know what's the ideal situation that we're we're doing this in? That, you know there isn't one.
2: No, and you and you've got this great story of of uh, you know uh, a great story, right? And you've got the successful stories, Um, but then there was the, the Iranian um conjoined twins. I've forgotten their name. That they're the ones that they they wanted to get separated. I um, think I think they were twenty nine. I think and um they both they both died. And 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 there, I think the the question was whether the experts were sharing enough information, like what were the incentives? Like, So there, there was a lot of underlying sort of question about the quality of the, that expert advice that, of course, we can point fingers at because we know it went badly, I guess, to your point, Lisa, like, you know, when it goes really well, it's easier to look back and be like, oh my gosh, that was a great medical decision. And when it doesn't, you can look back and say, oh, you should have known better. You know, I, how, how did you let them go ahead with this?
0: And that's again, you know, getting into, you know, what rights do people have? Because, you know, they were 29, one into one wanted to work in Tehran, one into wanted to stay where they were. You know, they can't do that if they're joined. Um, and I thought that was such a hard, it's such a hard story because, um, it really does show you that they were two individuals who, who really had these goals. And the only way they could have reached those goals is by taking that risk.
3: I guess I felt like they were fairly well-warned, at least the way she reported it. Yeah. That, uh, the doctors were very reluctant to undertake this. And then that gets us into that secondary question is, is paternalistic for them to turn around and say, no, I'm not doing this surgery, right? Because they don't want to do harm, right? They've, they've sworn not to do harm. And yet there is a very real harm. To, if it is in the case that these women came at this decision, you know, this is what they wanted. And again, you could raise that question of how much is this something you wanted or how much of this was you living with 29 years of people flipping out mm-hmm. over who you are? Well, it, she made it sound like
1: this condition had become intolerable yeah. for these twins. And, and in that case, it sounds like they made the right decision and they sounds like they
3: made it with an understanding that they might die. Yeah, and that that's what they wanted. And that was an okay outcome you know, based on that choice. Again, though, I wonder sometimes how much of life is intolerable because of context, right? But she's a wonderful statement in here about like, how much of it is that people who have mobility disabilities are disabled? And how much of it is that the world is really stupid about providing ramps and Mm -hmm. automatic doors? I mean, even the building that we work in, RGL was built long after ADA requirements in the United States, And I had to shriek my head off to get our student services offices an automatic door. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Now, for anybody in the audience who's worried, I actually still have my head. It creates quite a bit of shrieking to actually make it fall off. But you know, just the fact that it was, I mean, it was well into a time when those things should have been pro forma in building trades and in the sort of design approval and uh, inspection process on campus. And yet, there we were, right, without them. And then again, like, It's hard because, you know, again, I, you don't know their minds. All you can do is report and you can look back at their decisions. And, you know, as it is, they, they threw the dice and it didn't work out. I think there's a very clear example of a story in here where experts are not doing their job. And that's the, and she relates this story really quickly. It's from a a person that she interviewed who reported that when she had given birth to an intersex child, she'd requested that she wanted to talk to other parents who had had to make a similar decision about what to do, whether to pursue surgery right away, and the physicians—I and I cannot believe that the hospital social worker didn't didn't challenge this idea. But you know, incompetence is everywhere. But they turned around and told her that this has never happened before, and they isolated her. That's very clearly a case of malpractice, right? Because one, you're ignorant about this condition that you're saying you're going to treat, right? You're either fibbing because you do know that um, intersex births are much more common than they're portrayed everywhere in the universe, or two, you're so ignorant. You actually believe that that's true. And both of those instances are unacceptable to treat a patient with these, um, with these characteristics. And then the subsequent like trying to cut her off from different forms of expertise, right? That is very clearly outside the bounds, I think, of of anything even approaching reasonable professional and expertise, and expert conduct.
0: I think that also gets to, there are different kinds of expertise. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. (laughs) The lived experience does give you, you could tell your story and hopefully that may or may not help a new parent.
3: Well, and again, this is now a different universe of the internet where your doctors can tell you that and you can jump. Right online and encounter a group of parents who have made these decisions, and there's much more the notion that you may or may not get good advice, but it's not just going to come from a specific set of individuals. Yeah, I had actually not when I read that the first time all those years ago. I kind of thought jerks, and this time I was so mad I almost threw the book across the room.
0: You know, I went to Jagger's website this morning just to get an idea of what she has been up to. Um, And the first thing that I read was that uh, she sees herself as a historian and writer of democracy, that all of this is, you know, there, but that now uh, the focus is democracy. So, you know, I wonder how, you know, in thinking about difference and agency that might lead someone to be thinking about democracy Um, is accepting difference part of democracy.
3: all right, (laughs) written a little bit about sort of civil rights. Um, Because I mean, the notion of small D democracy function basically on majoritarian uh, collective life being adjudicated by majority values and majority uh, uh, preferences. Um, One of the reasons, right, um, that conjoined twins are such a uh, thorny problem, right? Medically, scientifically too, is that they're just, it doesn't occur very often. Um, markets in, 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 the mass, in the mass market world that we live in thrive when there are a lot of people who have the same demands and preferences, right? It's one of the benefits of liberalization. Democracies are kind of similar in that they don't necessarily treat people with difference all that well. Now, maybe, you know, she's a smart woman. Maybe she will have, sp- I mean, she spent 10 years between this book and Galileo's middle finger. And I have not read that, lots. I mean, she said 10 years. Now that's a lot of time where you could be reading a lot of political theory about democratic action and things like that, you know? So maybe she is stepping into a world of really thinking about what it means to be um, a small group in a pluralistic democratic world, like many of the ostensibly Western, ostensibly liberal democracies. Or maybe she's just late in her career and she's pretty much retired and she does whatever the hell she wants now. Um, given that every relatively famous male economist seems to decide that they're an expert on politics late in their career, I'm actually not willing to give her any more crap than I am, you know, I'm going to give then, than, You know, people said, you know, people are just like, oh, well, Greg Mankiw is an expert on politics now and Milton Friedman's an expert on politics now. And we're all just going to go with that. So I don't think we should be any harder on her than people are on them. Um, I just don't know. Right. But I do know that this whole idea of of difference in democratic contexts can be can be really tough unless we're committed to a robust framework of toleration and civil rights.
2: Well, and it goes back to me, Lisa, to where you started with um, a while back that I also thought was really important around how society accommodate some bodies better than others, right it's not it's not the, the, the it's about the interaction between our bodies and and uh, you know uh, and the environments that create sort of our physical abilities. And so is it that, that my legs don't work or is that there's no ramp on this building right that, that's a really powerful sort of question. And so so, so, so perhaps then where she could develop some expertise or, or apply her knowledge in an interesting way would be to think about, what is it, you know, to speaking to civil rights, what, what is it that we need our governments to sort of be able to do to accommodate more bodies? Um, and, and sort of, and, and so to that extent, I feel like there is something to be said about what what an institution needs to do in order to promote and and value a variety of bodies. So I think that maybe it's too abstract, but I could think of some expertise sort of in that domain.
3: I she sort of touches and then backs away from Medical sciences uh, difficulty dealing with race. And, you know, we are in a moment where, you know, what's passing for democracy in the United States is by any standard, if it were another part of the world, most political scientists would probably say that it's a troubled democracy, right? It's a democracy that's lurching back and forth between uh, people who very much seem to have a shared vision of a multiracial, pluralistic, Republic and people who are like, "No, this is a white and Christian nation. And that that kind of struggle is one in which the body, right, as it appears, the body that's revered and treated as attractive or desirable, the body that is deemed acceptable, um, that question about how that fits into the into that question of which direction the, whether the United States and other global, you know big democracies like India might go, that, that's, a, that's an important question in there because it gets at to this whole idea of what is human, what it, who can have agency, whose pain and suffering counts and whose doesn't. I don't think you can answer those, those big questions without really thinking about how bodies uh, are treated in, in those social systems, those social political systems that surround them. So maybe that's the avenue that she's going. You know, maybe she's a shameless opportunist who now knows that democratic theory is in some bad need of, of innovation, granted, you know, where we're at, both in the United States and globally. I don't know. All I know is it makes my brain hurt thinking about it. It also makes my heart hurt thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, I think we should really connect the dots here, though, more explicitly, right? There's a real strong connection between the sort of conservative reactionary um, fascist, I'm going to say it, I don't care if people like it or not, Um, authoritarian populism represented in white supremacist political movements and the um, criminalization and derogation of trans bodies. There's a lot of really wonderful writing about this from women of color. Uh, And so we we don't have to have, and trans trans people, um, Fear of the Black Body by Sabrina Springs is an excellent book that talks about the uh, this, the way in which, um, fat phobia has, was centered essentially on reactions to black women's bodies. Uh, I had actually about a year or so ago, I had a student and one, a wonderful student in one of my class, and I will actually hop off real quick here, see if I can find it. Um, so I want to make sure that we get the name right. of uh, um, a book called Captive Gender, uh, Captive Genders, Trans Embodiment and the Prison Industrial Complex. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a uh, edited edited volume, and it's extremely good um that talks about the connection between um, criminalization and uh, sort of popular criminalization of of trans bodies.
1: Mm-hmm. also, my grandmother's hands have has anybody read that? Christine, I know you're reading it, but just ha- with a trauma focused understanding of black bodies versus white bodies.
0: well, you know, I think um One of the things that she doesn't really get, I mean, she it's there, um, but I don't know that she says it explicitly is is the the trauma that so many of these um, intersex and conjoined twins have later in life because of what was sort of done to their bodies. So let's let's go back to the, the title for just a little bit. You know, she says conjoined twins and the future of normal. So, if you could give a definition, your ideal definition of the future of normal, what might it be?
3: (laughs) You know, again, prescientiating about the future—like, would this be a utopian, or would this be what I think might actually happen, or what?
0: Um, I think you could tell us both if you have those answers.
3: You know, I really like a, a topic that one of my students brought to class last fall. Um, she's interested in being a doctor and she talked about body neutrality mm. and um, instead of just sort of knee jerk body positivity or much more common, I think is just the whole notion that people's bodies as they are in the moment are a problem to be solved in some way, mm-hmm. um, but really just sort of being like people's bodies are their bodies and ending the sentence there, whatever it is in that moment, um, whatever needs it may want whatever sort of decisions that person may need to make, but just kind of separating the a priori definitions of good and bad from the body, you know, without engaging really with the person whose body is in question. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a really nice and not just nice, but useful way uh, to really try to bridge that divide between this notion of a good life versus a good body. Uh, and try to pull us out of binaries up front before we really start to explore. Yeah, I like that. Anybody else?
1: I don't, uh, I guess it makes me think about belonging and, and what, um, how we belong and how we find belonging. Um, and I guess in the future, I, I hope there's, there's more us's to belong to.
0: Did you find this book hopeful?
1: No. Lisa
0: <laughs> says no. Says no.
1: Mm-mm. No,
2: I didn't find it depressing, though, either. I mean, I, I felt like it was a a thoughtful or just, you know, it, putting together all those those count, you know, the good life and the normal life. It, it just just continually sort of bringing it up and sort of saying this is complicated uh, and and there's no easy answer. And it's it's not all going to hell in a handbasket. But but there's some. So, you know, society has some real challenges. And yeah, so I guess I didn't find it either depressing or hopeful. Um, I just found it pretty nuanced.
1: I don't know. I This is a bias I have for sure, but um, I really love stories of people who have the courage to be who they are. And I think there was a lot of that in this in this book. And I, I really, um,
3: I have such profound respect for that. So I, I I really enjoyed the book immensely. I think I'm just naturally a more doer person about so many things. <laughs> um, that I'm a little bit like Eeyore with so many things. But I'm really frustrated with how little really has changed uh, with regard to the treatment of intersex children in these two decades. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, this is the thing, right? Is whenever there are these, for every sort of moment, we might be able to Sort of point to as being able to show the existence of that pluralism and, and the sort of lots of places to belong that that Liz is pointing us to. There are also these really revanchist gender practices that are real really problematic, right? And exerting a, quite a bit of power right now, you know. So gender reveal parties, you know, I, you know, these people bring, blowing themselves up with cannons at gender reveal, yeah. um, getting getting like family and social systems really invested in a gender binary before the kids even showing up Um, and I I have had so many people yell at me and go oh it's just a fun thing that families do and just don't buy it you know if it works out that the kids parts match what you think they should and the you know the person's inner self matches up across the board then no right your your gender reveal party probably didn't cause any trouble but for the kids that for that is not true, they have very, very high suicide rates, mm. right? And I just don't think you you mess around, right? Have a, have a party with, you know, green frosting on your cake in order to just avoid getting people really invested in this kind of stuff because, you know, the world does have to change. It isn't, you know, that's kind of the thing that I'm struggling with here, which is, of course, you know, the world is what it is, but it, it isn't, right? Like the world changes all the time. I'm an old lady. Do you know how many, many, many undergraduate essays on marijuana legalization I have read before any of the states even tried it? And back when I was their age, it was it was never going to happen, right? People assured me. The world does change, but it doesn't change unless we nudge it, right? And that takes work and it takes time and it takes organizing and all of those things are hard. You know, they're time consuming and intense. You know,
0: so... You know, I, I see that dourness, but I sort of wonder if just the fact that there are more conversations, that this book is still in print, that there are more trans folks on television, that um, I'm trying to think of intersex, you know, middle sex was a, a bestseller, a Ministry of Utmost Happiness was a bestseller. So the more people are exposed, the more we can change our institutions.
2: And it, and it is so hard hard I mean, and, and not that not that not that that, that we just give into that but I mm. you know I think it's you know she talks about in here about individualism and sort of the in uh, the, the ingrained nature like how we just we think about this as individuals we don't think about this we don't think about the us it's like we think that we don't think about the collective we think about the individuals we we think about the categories we sense make by putting people into buckets like these are um we, we have to keep pushing back on them and certainly all for or, for, for continuing to organize that, and we do see progress but I think I think the frustration is because I don't feel like we push back on that individualism piece and on on the on the I versus the us piece enough and 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 that I think keeps us stuck mm-hmm. uh, in this loop where you don't change society enough you just change the people
0: yeah I mean I think that's one of the central questions that you know we're seeing in polarization you know what is <laughs> what are we? What is our duty to each other. So it looks like we're getting down to the wire. So uh, we have a couple of questions at the end. Um, did you like the book? I'm sensing it's a yes.
3: <laughs> I liked it both times that I read it.
0: I did too. Um, and I liked the way I know this is going to stay in my brain, sort of in the back, sort of asking questions. I think that's a sign of a great book. Who should read this book? Or... Because it's from 2004, is there a different book that you would recommend instead? Hmm. I sort of think anyone uh, in undergraduate work wanting to do pre-med, I think this is a, a good, thoughtful look at the nuances that you might have
3: and that you should think about going into that field. There are a lot of good books yeah. in the decades subsequent right. on sort of theorizing the body and bioethics and gender are any of them as well-written as this one. That to me is the killer because sometimes I kind of grit my little teeth and be like, you know, this could be a couple articles. Um, But I think that would, one, it wouldn't have had the impact that it did. And it's an awfully approachable book Mm. to what are awfully difficult ethical problems. And she really doesn't, she's not a pedant here. She's not trying to get people to think about consequentialism versus deontology. You know, but she is sort of confronting us with that, you know, problem in this very real way. And so it's so well constructed. It'd be really nice if there were a new addition. I think, too, she
1: personalizes these things in a way that really helps us all see ourselves and see people we know. And I think that's really essential for us to grapple with all of these issues.
2: Agreed and, and add to that the narrative and the story and, and sort of then that she does a really, sometimes it's a little heavy handed. Um, but, but most of the time I felt like those stories were just, they're, they're, they like you said, they're going to sort of stick in the back of my head, right? You're going to, and, and they're going to help you sort of think about normal, uh, in a really different, in a different way.
3: You know, um, the book that this reminds me of is another one of my favorites in the bioethic universe. And it's because they have shared themes about like what the role of expertise is. And that's Anne Fadiman's book, The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down, um, which I think was in the, I think it's an old book now. I think it's late 1990s. But I think those themes of just asking those questions um, beyond gender and all the things that I've sort of pushed our discussion to talk about, about like what role expertise plays in the care of individuals, that perspective in this book is still really germane and really salient. And I also recommend Fatim's book if you're interested in those kinds of themes. Um, in terms of who should read it, it certainly belongs, something like this belongs in an undergraduate class in, in some sort of bioethics module for students who do want to become doctors. I think it's hard for people to generalize to expertise more generally and more generalize more generally in the way that I did going from my profession to professions in general. But the whole notion about like what epistemologies and expertises should be allowed in our deliberations about what to do is a hearty perennial in all the policy contexts and all the institutional contexts of care that we would wanna, you know, that, that are important to our everyday lives. Anyway.
0: Did you have a favorite line or passage or chapter?
2: Well, mine is not it, My favorite line actually had nothing to do with the substance of the book. It just made me <laughs> laugh out loud. She was talking about how um, in the majority of people that are conjoined, that they have not expressed the sensation of being overly confined or horribly dependent or physically trapped or unwillingly chained others, but that the people that she has heard that from are um, present-day Californians living in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> and that just made me laugh out loud. Um, <laughs> that. Um it, it was apropos nothing right it just came out of it came out of nowhere, but it did resonate with me as, as being a native Californian, having spent most of my life in california and, and sometime um not in the midwest but in the east and and feeling a bit trapped and a bit claustrophobic uh that that
3: uh resonated with me oh, the native Midwesterner in me resents this. <laughs> It was a, it was a very funny line and I actually was dead shocked that the editor let her keep it Mm. because Harvard university press is not famous for its scholarly, funny books. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) it is however, Harvard university press is however, very good about keeping books like this into print in print that have had a lot of impact and not just cycling them out. I actually am deeply envious of how well she writes. Mm. I am one of those people who believes we need more historians in policy schools, simply because somebody in this place should be a halfway decent writer. Um, And that's something that historians are often expected to be. The line that I really marked as just being exceptional, again, was also funny because it involved wordplay. Mm -hmm. But if questions, it, it happens on page 144. But if questions about the degree to which medical professions should be adjudicating issues of social identity are not new, they certainly have greater urgency today, for it is getting harder and harder to draw a basic philosophical distinction between the clinic and clinique, the latter being the medical and healthy sounding line of extremely expensive skincare proto, which I thought was a really nice insight and also was just a really nice line. Mm-hmm did you have a favorite line?
1: No, I didn't. I, I read this immediately upon receiving it. And um, that was a couple months ago. So yeah. all the historic images, I thought actually that was, um, the images really supported and expanded the text in a way that I think a lot of times images don't.
3: Uh, Drager, if you are listening to this, you have no idea how high praise this is. Because yeah. l- <laughs> never says this, <laughs> ever. There is many an extremely scarred undergraduate whose PowerPoint presentation (laughs) got well-deserved criticism. PowerPoints. You know, that's
0: an interesting thing, Liz, too, because um, we don't normally have books with
3: illustrations on the podcast. And this month we had two books. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I would echo that, actually. You know, for a book that's written for a popular art, Um, Audience, the academic citation is extremely good and very thorough and very careful. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Liz is right. There are I love pictures in books, and I love picture books. I have no aspirations to seem all that smart here, but there are a lot of books that we get in histories that are just kind of there because they're interesting or they help bring a context to life. And um, here, she's really using those photographs and drawings as evidence in extremely useful ways. Yeah.
0: To change the topic from um, favorite lines, my favorite line is in the very last page. And she says, I recently looked up, recently would have been in the early 2000s. So it's recent. Um, I recently looked up the definition of individuality and learned that there's an archaic meaning of the term indivisibility. And that got me thinking about democracy and everything that we've been through these last few years and just the whole world. And yeah, I really love her writing. So thank you for choosing this book. It is a really good conversation that I've enjoyed. So before we do the outro, are you reading anything now that you might recommend or that you've just started? That was Lisa's question.
3: <laughs> well, I was trying to be polite.
2: <laughs> I just finished reading Mexican Gothic for my book club. Which is a very scary sort of feminist horror book. Very yellow wallpapery. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know that I would. Uh, it was, it, you know, there's a the thing about book clubs, right? You don't pick the books that you read; you read what someone else picks. And I couldn't read it at night; it was too scary. I'm not, a, I'm not a big horror person.
1: Yeah,
0: unfortunately, I'm a big <laughs> horror person. So
1: sounds kind of good. Yeah, I, I recently read American Baby. It's effectively a, a history of the the closed adoption system from the nineteen forties through the, the mid seventies and sort of how post war the system for dealing with unwanted pregnancies um became was pathologized effectively. Um and it, it hadn't been before
3: before the war. So that
1: was illuminating.
3: I am reading a weird book Uh, It's not weird. It's actually a very nice book. But it's one of those history of ideas kinds of books. And it's called Fatal Discord by Michael Manning. And it's about the rivalry between Erasmus and Luther in the sort of and, and how very personal it became This sort of political difference became very personal in their rivalry and just you know, really trying to get at this fundamental question of, do you try to reform institutions from within them or do you have to burn it all down? Mm. And it's, a, am it, not really all that far into it, but again, it's, the, the writing is, is very, very good. Um, and for people like me who are interested in, the, in this kind of question, right, about like, when do you really try to reform something versus when you have to just throw it all away, subvert it and challenge it, um, try to create something of your own. It's, it's a really worthy question to think about. Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I'm going to make the same recommendation that I made, um, in our other podcast this month. Um, I am listening to the audiobook version of the book, Daisy Jones and the six.
3: Uh-huh. I read that
2: from my book club too. Did you read it? Or, so you read the book? I read and, it. I read it. I did not listen to that one. Sometimes I listen to them.
0: Yeah. So I don't know that I would have like really loved reading this book, but um, listening to it and all the actors and mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's just fun. I'm not learning anything new, it's, it's, but it's a lot of fun.
3: I think people are allowed to have fun.
1: (laughs) We need that. Yeah. These days, especially. Yes. So um, thank you. Thank you
0: all for uh, reading the book and talking with us today. So thank you, Christine. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Lisa. Mm -hmm. And a big thank you to our listeners. We hope that you, our fellow book lovers, are getting something out of what we're doing. And we'd love to know if you have questions or comments or complaints. (laughs) We'd love to hear from you. To find our whole suite of podcasts exploring governance and civics, search USC Bedrosian on your favorite podcast app. You'll find links to some of the things that we talked about today on our website, bedrosian.usc.edu slash book club. And if you're reading along with us, and I really hope you are, we're also reading Ali Brosh's Solutions and Other Problems this month. And next month, which is March, 2021, we are reading Twilight of Democracy by Anne Applebaum and Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. So thank you again to our guests and to producer Jonathan Schwartz and a huge thanks to our beloved sound supervisors, the brothers Hedden, Corey and Ryan. Signing off, I'm Aubrey Hicks coming to you from Southern California and I hope to catch up soon.